0: Good morning, Ah, good to be with you, my name is Bryce, I'm the pastor here, and uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I just want to say hi, and I would love to get a chance to say hi in person after the service. Um, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Numbers chapter 13, Numbers is towards the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And uh, if you're following along in one of the blue Bibles on the ground, you can find Numbers 13 on page 121. This morning we are uh, wrapping up a series we've been in over the last couple weeks um, about following Jesus in the world that we live in. And so we are uh, finishing this series this morning looking at um, this sort of tragic passage in the book of Numbers, and just to kind of set the scene here before we, I read the passage, what's happening here is that uh, God's people have been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and God has heard their cry and has raised up Moses, and Moses has led the people out of slavery in Egypt and across the desert, and has promised that he is going to bring them into this, this good land, this land that... that the, um, that he's promised is flowing with milk and honey. And uh, they're going to go into this land and, and life is going to be amazing. And God will be with them as their God and uh, they will live happily ever after. And so they've traveled across the desert and they've now reached the Jordan River, which is sort of the boundary into the promised land. And they now are faced with a decision about whether they will go forward in obedience to God and enter into this land that he's given them or not. So let me invite you to stand with me as I read um, Numbers 13, starting at verse 17. Moses has chosen um, a spy from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it says this in Numbers 13:17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and he said to them, go up into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what, that land, see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is a good or bad land, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether the tr- there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage, and bring some of the fruit of the land." Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Lebo-Hamath. They went up into the Negev and and came to Hebron. Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before the Zoan in Egypt. Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshcol, and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol, because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told Moses, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And beside, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. They're giants. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them as well. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we would have died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation and the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, please. Well, the year was 1803, Thomas Jefferson, the President of the United States, had just negotiated the deal of a lifetime in the Louisiana Purchase, purchasing not just the state of Louisiana, but a vast uh, territory of land, nearly doubling the entire size of the United States. The uh, country had grown up, as you know, on the eastern seaboard, and uh, the territory west of the Mississippi was largely unknown, and so Thomas Jefferson, one of the first things he did after uh, completing the Louisiana Purchase was commission Lewis and Clark to go out and survey and explore this newly uh, purchased territory. Thomas Jefferson had written that the, that the goal was to find the most direct and practical practicable water communication across the continent for the purpose of commerce. Uh, it was a great idea. The problem is that it was built completely on a false expectation. It had been assumed for 300 years that somewhere in North America there was a great uh, northwestern passage a river that's similar to the mighty Mississippi flowing north and south, that the Great Western Passage um, would flow quickly and easily and directly to the Pacific Ocean. And whoever controlled it would control commerce across the country. It would have been like owning the internet, really. I mean, the flow of goods and traffic and information would have been uh, the sole possession of whoever discovered that river. And so Lewis and Clark led a, uh, a large expedition. And they went in search of that river. And so they traveled up river, up the Mississippi River, up the Missouri River. They followed the Missouri River up to its source. And they expected that at some point, if they went far and far enough up to the source of the Missouri River, they would reach the Continental Divide. And when they got to the Continental Divide, they would have a short walk over a hill where they would find the other river that would then um, take them easily down to the Pacific Ocean. And so after 15 months of grueling winter, um, just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, they reached the the hill leading up to the Continental Divide. And Meriwether Lewis was convinced he was going to take a short walk up the hill and he was going to lay eyes on that river or some source of easy transport to the Pacific Ocean. And he got up to the top of that hill. And he could not have been more disappointed. Because what he saw when he got to the top of that hill was not a river, broad and wide, but he saw on the distant horizon the Rocky Mountains. (laughs) Just peak after peak after peak that they had to traverse. And when he saw that horizon, Lewis said, they were the most terrible mountains he had ever seen. And at that moment, everything about their journey changed because they had assumed that they had put in the hard work already. And that getting to that point had been the difficulty. Um, And now it would be just easy sailing. And they assumed that they could put their boats in the river And in a matter of weeks, they would be in the Pacific. And now they had a decision to make. They could put their boats in a river and go back where they came from. But if they were going to continue to go ahead, they were going to have to learn new skills. They were going to have to abandon their boats and learn how to climb. And so they did. But at that moment, they had to make that choice. They couldn't just go with the flow. They would have to learn new skills. If they were going to go forward, they were going to have to do something that they had never done before. This morning, we are finishing our series on the way of Jesus. We're finishing this, I don't know, seven-week series. But we are not moving on from the way of Jesus. In many ways, this is really just the beginning. But as we wrap up this series of sermons, I believe that individually, and in many ways as a church, we are facing a similar decision that the Lewis and Clark expedition had to make that day as they crossed the Continental Divide. And the decision is whether we will move forward into the way of Jesus, learning new skills, or whether we will rely on what has gotten us this far. Because, friends, the truth that Lewis and Clark discovered, and the truth that uh, we have been discovering in this series is that we are on the threshold of something new. We, you know, the culture is always changing, and yet something is radically changing in the world that we live in, and what got us to this point is not going to get us where we are trying to go. The way of Jesus, as I've been trying to make clear over these past weeks, isn't just the way of the world, but like a little bit better. Uh, The way of Jesus is not the way of the world with Jesus on top. It's not the way of the world with better morals. It's not the way of the world with Jesus at the end of life. It is a completely different way of living. And so the decision that we're faced with is whether we are going to step forward into the way of Jesus, into the unknown, or whether we're gonna rely on what has gotten us this far. But what I really wanna emphasize today is that the way of Jesus is a way of living. It's a way of life. It's not just a way of believing. If we're gonna follow the way of Jesus, we will have to leave our old habits behind. And we will have to develop new rhythms. We will have to begin to live. It will require action. We will have to depend on the God who is with us when the world around us feels unsteady. So the question that I want to ask this morning is, will we move from belief to faith by following Jesus into a new way of living? Numbers 13 and 14, the people of God are in a similar position, aren't they? What has gotten them this far is not going to take them where they want to go. They've had a profound experience of God's presence. They have witnessed miracles as God has set them free from slavery in Egypt, as he's part of the Red Sea and they've walked through. Um, They've met with God at uh, at Mount Sinai. God has provided miraculously manna from heaven, food from heaven. Um, They have traveled with God following a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day across the desert, and the whole time God has said, I will bring you into this land. And finally, the promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob hundreds and hundreds of years before are about to come to fruition. These promises are going to be fulfilled and they're gathered at the edge of the Jordan River about to enter the promised land. And there is so much potential. And God has been so good to his people and they are right on the brink of realizing all that God has promised to them. The only question is, will they have the faith to follow God into this promised land? Will they have the faith to live out the promises that God is already answering on their behalf? Or will they go back the way that they came? And so Moses, like I said, chooses uh, from the 12 tribes of Israel one spy from each of the tribes. And each of the tribes sends this kind of representative, and it's funny how, um, uh, if, if you think about, you know, there, there, there are little boys named Joshua and Caleb, and the other names we can't pronounce. <laughs> These 12 spies go and they all see the same thing. And it's interesting, they all come back with the same report, don't they? The report is unanimous. They come back, they say, it is a really good land. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is wonderful. The cities are great. Everything's amazing. They're completely in agreement. But two of them say, um, we can do this. Let's do it right now. There's so much potential. The land is good. Let's go in and enjoy what God has promised us. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say let's do it right now. But ten of them say we shouldn't go. We shouldn't go. Notice that they all believe the same thing. But only two of them are actually willing to live it out. I was struck by that reality, two out of twelve. Because in this series, I've been showing you uh, this statistic. Um, some research done by the Barna Group on the faith practices of young, uh, of young adults who grew up in Christian homes. And uh, that bottom right corner, we've been focusing on resilient disciples. Uh, 10%. Uh, if you could just leave that up for a couple minutes, that'd be great, Kim. 10% of uh, young adults who grew up in Christian homes are... Um, living an active, dynamic faith that is flourishing in a culture uh, that is pressing in on them. 10%, um, you know, two out of 12 is 16%. It's it's really close. (laughs) Um, Maybe it's not all that new that that 10% of people who are trying to follow God are are, are thriving um, as they do that. A very similar percentage, but what's been fascinating to me as we look at the data around the faith practices of these younger Christians is that belief, this substance, the content of what you know, all of these groups believe is actually not that much different. I mean, you would look at this, prodigals are people who say, I'm not a Christian. Nomads are people who would say, I'm a Christian, but uh, I don't go to church, I don't read the Bible, I don't pray. Um, cultural Christians are people who show up at church regularly, but don't read the Bible, don't pray. I'm oversimplifying. Resilient disciples are thriving in the midst of a culture that is trying to force faith out of them. They all believe in many ways the same thing. Um, This is fascinating to me. When asked the question, has Jesus deeply transformed your life? Or when asked the question, do you feel re-energized spending time with Jesus? 87% 87% of the resilient Christians, resilient disciples said yes. Half of the cultural Christians said yes. One third of the, the nomads said yes. And even 10% of the people who say that I'm not a Christian actually say yes, I'm energized by spending time with Jesus. I mean, that's fascinating that, that there is so much overlap in, in what these people, all of us really, I guess, are represented here somehow. Um, there is so much overlap in what in, in the belief, the content of belief, the only difference is, the significant difference is not so much the content of belief, but the, the, the willingness of resilient disciples to actually follow God, to live the way of Jesus, to cross over into the land, to realize the promises, to step into the potential because God has already done the work on our behalf. And so here's what I want you to see this morning. The way of Jesus The way of Jesus calls for the faith to walk into the prayers that God is already answering. God has already done the work. He's invited us to pray. Now he's asking us to have the faith to actually step into the the promises that he has already answered. There is so much potential. That word potential has been haunting me recently. Uh, When I talk to you guys, about our church. Um, we hear the word potential a lot. Uh, Dustin Stevie, I remember, said to me, I don't know, several months ago, maybe a year ago, the thing I love about Resurrection O.C. is that there's so much potential. Jeff Barney said to me two weeks ago, you're going to hate when I say this, but Bryce, there's so much potential in this church. I know, I know. You know, when I hear you talk about Uh, your lives, we don't often use the word potential, but there is so much of this just hunger to realize what seems just out of reach. We are longing, we are longing to realize that potential, wondering if we will ever get there. Once I get through this next season at work, you know, once my kids get to this next stage, then life will kind of relax a little bit. Once I shake this sin that's been plaguing me, in six months I'll be happy, There's so much potential, and yet it always seems to just slightly outrun us. The way of Jesus is an invitation to walk into that potential. The way of Jesus is an invitation to walk with God into the prayers that he is already answering on our behalf. So how do we do that? Well, there's two things that I want to draw out of this passage. Stepping into the way of Jesus, just like the Israelites were standing there on the other side of the Jordan River, wondering if they should cross over the river, following God into the promises that he had already answered on their behalf. The way of Jesus means crossing over into a different way of life. And so the first thing I want you to see is that the way of Jesus means crossing from success to faithfulness crossing over from success to faithfulness. So the spies, they go and they they spy out the promised land and they they spy out the whole country and for 40 days they see all there is to see and they come back with this unanimous report and they say, this land is awesome, it's exactly like God said it would be, it's great. And Caleb and Joshua say, we are going right now and the other 10 say, well, hold on a second there, let's do a cost-benefit analysis before we get too eager. They don't disagree with anything Caleb and Jonathan say about the quality of the land. But what do they say? They say, we might not win. We might not be successful. There's a risk, and we're not sure that if we follow God, we're not sure if we'll be successful. Please notice the difference between these two postures is not a disagreement about the facts. They all agree on the facts. The division is over the narrative that they tell themselves to interpret the facts. Does that make sense? They all agree on the data, but what story explains the data? Success or faithfulness? One group says, success is the ultimate goal. The other says faithfulness is the ultimate goal. One group says God is good. There's so much potential, but it might not work. We're going to follow Jesus. Well, I mean, kind of. The other group says we're going to be with him. We're going to go where he leads us. It might not work. We don't know. The goal is just to be with him. He has been so faithful to us that we cannot help but be faithful to him. Two utterly different ways of living, and I think that we have to acknowledge that Crossing from success to faithfulness as Americans is so unnatural <laughs> to us. Uh, this goes counter to everything that we wanna believe. It, it, the way of Jesus is not, is not anti-American, but it is certainly counter to the secular culture that our culture, uh, like the, the secular mindset that our culture has imbibed and crams on us at every, at every corner. The way of Jesus involves a radical shift in our outlook. It is a different way of life. It means crossing from success to faithfulness. It means not making the metric, is this going to work? But making the metric, does this lead us to be people who are faithful to what God has called us to be? Dallas Willard is a, um, he passed away short, not too long ago, but was a uh, professor at USC, um, He he said this, he said, My central claim is that we can become like Christ by doing one thing, by following him in the overall style of life that he chose for himself. If we have faith in Christ, we must believe that he knew how to live. We can, through faith and grace, become like Christ by practicing the types of activities that he engaged in, by arranging our whole lives around the activities he himself practiced, in order to remain constantly at home in the fellowship of his Father. We become more like Jesus by doing the things Jesus invites us to do. It's, it, I <laughs> it's very, that's very clear, I think, right? One of the strange ironies, I think, of life is that all of the things that we really want in life, growth, health, happiness, joy, success, um, all come as a byproduct. In fact, if you make them the goal, um, they continue to elude you. They only come as the byproduct of faithfulness. And yet, please hear me when I say this. I was reminded of this this week. Faithfulness is not a strategy for success. Because it would be so easy to to, to listen to this and be like, oh, so the way that we're going to be successful is by becoming faithful. you know, in the time and place um, where, where the Israelites stand here in, in Numbers 13 to 14, um, they actually were assured of success. Uh, what God was doing in, in redemptive history at this point, um, he had already promised them that they would be victorious if they followed him into the promised land. We don't have that promise. He hasn't promised that everything we do uh, we will be successful in as long as we are faithful. Faithfulness to God is not a strategy for success. It's an invitation into a way of life where we look to the God who has been faithful to us and we follow him where he leads us. That's what it means to be faithful. We do not, we do not say, God, I will be faithful to you as long as you promise me success. I mean, uh, many of us are living, I'm living my life like that a lot of the time. But that is not the promise of God. The promise... Uh, what we're talking about is giving up on the metric of success and instead adopting the metric of faithfulness. So, what does that look like? Well, I've been um, showing you this graphic. Uh, well, I changed it, but um, that there are really six characteristics of resilient disciples. Resilient disciples are people who read the Bible and pray because it is a source of life, resilient disciples are people who practice hospitality. Resilient disciples are people who have this conviction that the gospel uh, has reshaped my identity and that my behavior and my life change as the gospel penetrates my heart. Resilient disciples live uh, as a part of a community, the church, and resilient disciples are people who live with this conviction that I am my brother's keeper, that my life is to be a gift to the world that I give away to others. Resilient disciples have reordered their lives around these six practices, not because reorienting your life around these six practices will make you more successful, but because it will make you more faithful. Now, I actually have to say, I do believe your life will be better if you reorient your life around these six practices, but not better in the sense that you're going to make more money, <laughs> or your children will like be better behaved quicker, or turn out more well-adjusted. I do actually think that you will enjoy your life more. But you will enjoy your life more because the God who loves you knows how you function best. Um, It's better to live the way God asks us to live than, uh, I can't remember what the movie is, but I have this image in my mind of a, of a, of a movie with Eddie Murphy and he's up at the Griffith Observatory and he's, he's freaking out and he's going, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. I don't know why, that just popped into my head. But that is how much, uh, that is uh, such a description of the way so many of us are living our lives. Keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. It's a terrible way to live. As long as I can stay on top of this sandcastle that seems like it's always slipping away under my feet. I'll be happy, but, I, but, 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 I'm, but it's always slipping away under my feet. The way of Jesus is an invitation to reordering our lives around faithfulness to God. This is where we're going as a church. We are here to build disciples. We are ending this series, but this is not the last time you will see this graphic. I want to make it look better, but, I mean, it doesn't really matter. This is not the last time you're going to hear me talk about these six characteristics because we're done with this sermon series. This is why we're here, friends. We're here to build resilient disciples. And my job as your pastor is to equip you to live this kind of life. And one of the things I've been realizing over the last year or so is that as a church, and I think churches in general, do a pretty good job of saying this is what you should do. But we don't do as well at actually the how. (laughs) And what I'm realizing is that, I mean, Ephesians 4 says it is the job of pastors and other leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It is my job to actually equip you to live this kind of life. And so um, this is why we continue or we're continuing to emphasize emphasize discipleship courses that we're starting. We're uh, leading a group through emotionally healthy spirituality right now. On Thursday evenings, it's been fantastic. Um, I want to do it again with a different group of people after Easter. I, don't, I can't figure out how to put anything on the calendar that suits anybody's schedules, but I, I will do this as many times as I can to make it available for as many of you as I can because this is so important. Because learning how, because I know what it's like to say to you, hey, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but if you read the Bible, if you pray, if you begin to experience a relationship with Jesus that goes below the surface, it will literally transform your life. And to see you looking at me going like, I I don't know. I mean, it sounds great, but I read the Bible. I don't know where to start. I felt guilty. It was confusing. I want to help you. And my hope is that Um, over the next year that that everybody who's a regular tenor at our church would would be able to take part in emotionally healthy spirituality. And my hope is that uh, over the next year or so, we're going to actually develop a few more courses that help us kind of pay attention to each of these uh, characteristics and grow in each of these areas of discipleship because we want to equip you to live the way that Jesus said will bring you life by crossing over from the metric of success to the metric of faithfulness. You know, one of the things I've been struck by recently um, is how much we as American Christians have to learn just in general, Um, but especially, um, you know, one, one thing that's gonna happen in the next decade is that Sort of the cultural center of Christianity is moving from North America to China. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but um, I mean, demographically, it's happening. And I was talking with um, with a friend this week, and I I was saying, you know, um, a, a pastor friend of mine. We were saying, you know, between the two, a couple of us. If we were to name how many names of like prominent Christian pastors could we come up with? we would be able to name dozens of them. And I don't know if you pay attention to these headlines, it's kind of the water that I swim in, but it seems like every week or two, there is another headline of a well-known celebrity Christian pastor who has been outed as a control freak, spiritually abusive, manipulative, has lost his platform, his, um, his ministry, his reputation. Because the metric of success that drives American Christianity is not biblical. And so I could think of dozens and dozens of names. You know, if I were to ask you, uh, can you name one Chinese pastor? I don't know if you could answer that question. I only know the name of one Chinese pastor. His name is Wang Yi. And the reason that I know his name is because in December 2018, he was arrested and held in prison. He was denied access to his family or his lawyer. And about a year later, just before New Year's in December 2019, just you know, a few weeks ago, in a secret trial, he was convicted by the Chinese government and sentenced to nine years in prison for telling people about Jesus. And he released a statement saying that he refused to appeal his wrongful conviction. And friends, we have so much to learn about faithfulness. American, why would you not appeal? Because success isn't the goal. Faithfulness is the goal. Will we cross over from success to faithfulness? It brings Jesus glory. But secondly, secondly, the way of Jesus means crossing over from shame to vulnerability crossing over from shame to vulnerability, when the ten spies say, no, we can't do it, the people just freak out. <laughs> and in, uh, in Numbers 14, they're, like, they're just looking for somebody to blame. And they, they grumble against Moses and Aaron, and then they say, it's your fault, why did you lead us here? And then they say, it's God's fault, why did God bring us all the way out here to kill us? And then they say, let's go back to Egypt. It was so great back there. You know what we need? We need new leaders who will do what's right and take us back to Egypt. Because life in Egypt was so great. Where you were slaves for 400 years. Where you never had a day off. Where you were oppressed. Where the Egyptians, when, when the Israelites began to flourish and grow, the Egyptians slaughtered their firstborn children. And life was wonderful in Egypt. Why do they want to go back to Egypt? Egypt, it's it's illogical. But I think what we're seeing here is the reaction of a people who are ashamed of themselves and they are lashing out by shaming others in response. They're looking for somebody to blame other than themselves. And the way of Jesus is an invitation to cross from shame to vulnerability. Caleb and Joshua are not saying, Hey guys, let's go into the land because we've got this all under control. We're bigger than them. We're stronger than them. We can handle this. Let's do it. That's not what they're saying. In fact, they say the people in the land are giants. They're not disputing the facts. They're saying they have these huge, fortified cities. Humanly speaking, I don't know how this is going to work. But they're saying God is with us. And that is the deciding factor. And because God is with us, we are going to enter into risk. We are going to be vulnerable Crossing from shame into vulnerability. Shame says, You are the problem. Shame is saying to somebody, You are the problem. Shame makes it easy to lob grenades at people that are different than us because they are the problem, they are the enemy. Vulnerability says, I'm going to take the risk of moving into this problem with you. Shame thrives in isolation, which is why it's making a comeback on the internet. Well, gospel vulnerability invites us into meaningful community. You know, one of the three core values of our church is vulnerability. And uh, we chose vulnerability five or six years ago when we were beginning to imagine what this church that God was calling us to plant would look like. And uh, we, we, we said we want to be a vulnerable church. And... Um, which shows vulnerability because what we were discovering was that in a world where everybody says they want community but doesn't experience it vulnerability is actually the necessary ingredient to community and so we said we wanted to be a vulnerable church because we want to experience community but we have never said it's never been our like intention to say we want you to feel vulnerable <laughs> like we don't we don't say hey you're new here so now it's your turn to be vulnerable that's not, that's not what we're saying. Rather we want as a church to be a place where it is safe to let our guard down so that we can actually know each other instead of hiding from each other. To come into God's presence, to come out of hiding as a community. And so we want to be a church that is vulnerable. And um, vulnerability in the last five or six years has sort of become a trendy word. And uh, we were on the leading edge of the trend, I want you all to know. But um, it's kind of become a, a trendy thing to talk about. And um, often being vulnerable, we talk about, when we talk about vulnerability, we think we're, we're talking about being emotionally transparent. But Andy Crouch wrote a, a great book that came out a few years ago called Strong and Weak. And um, here's what he says. He says, the vulnerability that leads to flourishing requires risk, which is the possibility of loss, the chance that when we act, we will lose something that we value. Andy Crouch in this book says, you know, the Old Testament prophets going to speak the truth to the king were not sharing their emotions with the king, but they were being vulnerable because they were risking losing their head. You know, uh, vulnerability is not the same thing as emotional transparency. Vulnerability involves taking a real risk. It involves a real risk. True vulnerability, the vulnerability that overcomes shame, requires taking a risk by stepping into the way of Jesus and following him into a future that is unknown and frankly unknowable. It requires a risk. But friends, the only alternative to vulnerability is shame. Those, those are really the only options that we have. Because again, shame, shame says you are the problem, and so I'm gonna stay away from you. The vulnerability says I'm gonna take the risk of moving into this problem with you. So you may have heard a rumor about this, but there is an election coming up in a few months, and it's gonna be horrible. it's going to be horrible. (laughs) And I don't mean by that that the outcome of the election is going to be horrible. It may be, I have no idea what's gonna happen. Um, I don't mean that the outcome is gonna be horrible. I mean that the next several months are gonna be horrible as we publicly shame each other. And, You know, I've been reading a book by a guy named a Welsh guy named John Ronson, called "So You've Been Publicly Shamed," and he writes this book where he he talks about um, American culture giving up on publicly shaming people after the uh, Salem witch trials. You know, people don't aren't put out in stocks for you know bad behavior to be mocked anymore and as a, as a culture we think that we've moved beyond shame and yet John Ronson wrote this book because he found himself in the middle of a public shaming on the internet and, and, he's, and he's kind of telling these somewhat comical but horrific tales of how shame has found a new life on the internet <coughs> And and I have to say that even that is not really, I mean, that's horrible, but it's not really so bad. My fear as we head into this election season is not that our culture is gonna be horrible, but that Christians as individuals and as the church we're just gonna jump into the ring and play the same game. Let me be clear, there's room for real and important disagreement, but there's room to do that without shame. And when we get online and we say something like, the problem with this country is, it doesn't matter what the next word is. Whether the problem with this country is Trump, or the problem with this country is the Democrats, you are shaming someone. And you are saying, you are the problem and I am not like you and therefore I can vilify you that the gospel says I'm gonna take the risk of moving into this problem with you. Shame will lead you to run away from the problem and so it always leads to loneliness and to isolation. We can have legitimate disagreements. Some candidates are better than others. There's no doubt about that. We can have those conversations vulnerably without shaming each other. The way of Jesus is an invitation to a life of flourishing which requires risk with the promise that Jesus is with us. And here's this is the whole key in this, in this whole thing is that the way of Jesus is about being with Jesus. The reason that the promised land was the promised land is because God promised to be our God and to live with us and to, to be God to us and to, for us to be his people. The, the whole point of this is to be With Jesus. And so, I mean, what if we went into this election season not so much with the conviction that we've got to get this right, but what if we went into this election with the goal being that we come out the other side still smelling like Jesus? I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Still radiating the aroma of Jesus to others? You know, the only way... To smell like Jesus, to have the aroma of Jesus that our friends, neighbors, coworkers, etc. pick up on is to spend time with Jesus. I left church last week arguing with Jeff Merwin about the best kind of barbecue: traeger or Big Green Egg. But you know what is um, universal about every kind of barbecue is that you can tell when somebody's been. Near the barbecue. Sometimes I come inside and my wife says, You smell like smoke. I said, I know. (laughs) I've been grilling. The only way to smell like barbecue is to be in the proximity of barbecue. And the only way to smell like Jesus is to be in the proximity of Jesus. So, friends, I want to invite you into a new way of living. The way of Jesus is not the way of the world. It's not like a better version along the same spectrum. It's a completely different way of living. Jesus called it a narrow road. We won't find the narrow road just by going with the flow. And so it's an invitation to cross over to a different way of life. But here's the good news. It is the path to true life. Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus exchanged his place with you on the cross. He gives you his righteousness. He pays for your sin. Jesus raised from the dead on your behalf. Jesus ascended into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father where he prays for you. That is good news because his spirit is living in you and you don't have to enter into the land of promise and potential based on your own efforts. It's already yours in Christ. The invitation is to experience the goodness of living life with Jesus by living life the way that Jesus asks you to live. He is alive within you. Our goal as a church is to become a community of resilient disciples together. To move past a life where we are just Busy, where we are fine, where we are stuck, where we are seeing potential but never realizing it. To move beyond that way of living by connecting with God and each other, by entering into the way of Jesus, by crossing over into faithfulness and vulnerability. I don't know what the future is going to look like for us. Like Ashley said uh, a little while ago, I have a meeting tomorrow with the school. Maybe we're going to move there. I don't know what's going to happen. Please pray. I think it would be wonderful for God to do this, for us to do this together as a church. But here's what I do know. I know that God will be with us. I know that God will be with us and that it will be a life worth living. And so the question that I want to ask you is this. As we stand on the brink, like Lewis and Clark standing at the top of the Continental Divide having a decision to make, or like the people of Israel standing at the banks of the Jordan River. To us in 2020, standing here before the path to the way of Jesus and the way of the world, So will you take a step? Jesus is living and active. He is at work within you. As we sang Galatians 2.20, all my life is defined by what Jesus is doing in me and through me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself up for me. He is at work within you. Will you step into the prayers that he is already answering on your behalf? Jesus is with us. Will you take that next step? That's the promise, and that's the question. The good news is that we don't do it alone. We don't do it alone, we do it as a church. Uh, The story has been told, you've probably, if you've been in a a, a church for any length of time, you've probably heard a pastor at some point tell the story of Charles Blondin, who in the 1800s, middle of the 1800s, he was a French tightrope walker, and he strung a line across Niagara Falls 1,100 feet. And being the 1800s, everybody came out to watch him cross this tightrope over Niagara Falls and he gathered this crowd and he stood up on the edge of the tightrope and he said, who believes that I can walk across Niagara Falls? And everybody said, you can do it. And they walked across and he walked back and everybody cheered and they said, that was amazing. And then he got a wheelbarrow and he said, who believes that I can walk this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls and back? And they said, we believe you can do it. And he walked out to the middle and he came back and everybody cheered and he said, that was great, they said, that was great. And he said, who, believe, who believes I could carry a person in this wheelbarrow across the falls? And everybody said, we believe you can do it. And he said, okay, great, who's the first volunteer? And the crowd went silent. And what he was calling out was the difference between faith and belief. See, we all believe that somebody else can do it. The question is, are we going to step into a life of faith on our own? But here's what I want to say. Jesus is not calling you to walk out on a tightrope with a maniac by yourself. (laughs) Isn't that great news? We're doing this together as a church. And so I'm gonna finish this morning and this series by doing something that I think will probably feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I'm gonna ask the band to come back up and I'm gonna invite you to stand up with me. Go ahead and stand. And I know that maybe you're not Presbyterians by conviction. We are a Presbyterian church, but you are a Presbyterian by personality if you've been here. And so this is going to feel very uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask you to reach out and grab hands, hold hands with the person next to you. Because we are not alone. Jesus is not calling us out onto a tightrope by ourselves, but he is calling us to follow him into a future that is unknown, where we are vulnerable, where we are faithful, but he's inviting us to do it together. And I don't know what the future is going to look like for us as individuals or as a church, but I know that Jesus is with us and he is at work within us and he is building this church. We're gonna do it together, so let's pray. Jesus, would you be with us? Jesus, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what to ask for we've got a lot of requests but we don't really know what you're doing Jesus we know what it's like to be hungry thirsty people to see um, things that others have to want more to long for life to be better than it is and yet you're inviting us into a different way of living. A way that you promise is the way to life. A way where one day everything will be made right. Where we will be satisfied, where every right will be, every wrong will be made right. But Jesus, you tell us it's a narrow road. It is a very specific way. And so would you help us Even this morning as we hold hands as a church to take this next step into the way that you have always been calling your people to live. A way that is marked by faithfulness instead of success. A way that is marked by vulnerability instead of being ashamed and shaming others. We believe, we believe in you, Jesus. And so we ask this in your name, amen.